Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Listen in, hear me. I may not pass this way again. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with Tom Rose of Reveal Records. I'm on a mission to help you unlock your creativity. I'm sharing my journey as a musician, actor and writer, as well as offering online content like guitar and songwriting tutorials and chat about creativity. I'm doing this because I know how important creativity is for mental health and I believe everyone has a creative spirit. I want to help you find yours. Join me at robertlaymusic.co.uk and on social media as Robert Lane Music. Thank you. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Very well. It's sort of, um, I'm talking to you on the 1st of September 2020, and we're in this weird in-between, is it lockdown, is it not lockdown type of situation that feels for me a lot of things are back to normal. Um, but as a performer... I still don't have any shows booked. I don't know when things are going to be booked. How's that working for the artists that you look after? Have things got have people got things in the calendar or or not so much still? Yeah, I've got a lot of things, you know, that I've rescheduled um for everybody. Sort of well, from March twenty twenty one right through to summer twenty twenty two, but um whether or not they'll be doing it, that's a little thing. And how much stuff got sort of postponed or cancelled? from this spring and this summer a lot i imagine yeah pretty much everybody's lost a year's work so yeah there was a lot of planning and re reorganization by uh artists and agents and myself and venues and promoters it's a bit uncertain but we'll see that's it it's, and it's the uncertainty that makes it tricky but then a lot of people that i've spoken to for you for this have found that it's led to new They've tried to make opportunities for it. So some of the writers and the musicians have found new new outlets for their creativity. How has that affected a, a label and a, 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 an artist management company? Have you found new ways of doing things or has it all just been waiting for the world to be a bit more normal again? I think the first few weeks we were just a bit blindsided and, you know, perhaps thought it was the end of everything. Um, and then little by little just you know, just that kind of like re-evaluation of where we're at and what we could do. And each person's in a different situation in terms of what they want to do and what, they, what they're what they able to do recording-wise and things. But it seems that what's what's happened is we've just planned more and more music on the label side and all the artists pretty much have been creative all the time, you know. So we've got a lot of new music now and a lot of new music for the first part of next year uh obviously you know different plans of how to promote and things but um yeah i feel like everyone's made the best of it really and just um done what they can and you know we've worked together to make a go of it do you think that this year will have changed that the way the way things work going forward is it going to change the way people release music or not so much i think yeah i think a lot of the old sort of traditional rules have gone out the window so when things are ready they're being released quicker and um obviously we've had to adapt you know the sort of print music magazines and things like that have 
either fallen by the wayside or not been available in stores. And so, yeah, the lead times and things have been much quicker. So there's been advantages and disadvantages. Um, yeah, it's a, it's perhaps a shifted things forward a bit in terms of everything going a bit more digital. And I wonder then if you could just give us a bit of a kind of summary of how we, how you got to this position of running the label. Am I right in thinking that Reveal started as a, a record shop? Yeah, I I left school and worked in a record shop and then managed a chain of stores for like indie stores. And then eventually late nineties took over one of those as my own that that was Reveal. Uh and then that did sort of better and better and we moved to a bigger place. And yeah, I guess it was just one of those things after like so many years of doing it where I, you know, I'd just kind of been in Derby selling records all the time and wanted to see the world a bit. So, yeah, I started branching out and doing did a local magazine and then started importing records from America with a view to starting a label. And then one month I went to see Rufus Wainwright and Jonas Policewoman was opening. And in the same month I went to see Kate Rusby and Chris Dreva sang one song in her set. And I came home and in both instances kind of went on the internet and wrote to them and said, would you like to be on the label? Here we are. <laughs> That's awesome. That Rufus Wainwright gig, was that Symphony Hall in Birmingham by any chance? That's right, yeah. I think I was yeah. there. And I think yeah. I had a, a a sort of similar epiphany almost. And it, I think that was one of the nights I sort of thought I could do, I want to do this singer-songwriter thing. I'd been in bands and stuff before, but there was something about that night and something about the fact that there were artists who were, how to put this, not mega super famous and could perhaps walk down the street, but had this really important loyal following. And um, and it was great because it wasn't even a gig that I'd chosen to go to. Somebody had a spare ticket and was like, do you want to come to this? And I was like, yeah, okay. As with so many things in life, as you've just mentioned, they come from things you're not expecting, don't they? And they become these really important Absolutely, evenings. Yeah. yeah, I think I think the person that I... At that Birmingham show, the person I was going to go with dropped out. And had he come, I would have been having dinner <laughs> and wouldn't have seen it. Uh, so, um, yeah, it was so. So, yeah, the following night, just to make sure she was in fact that good, I went again to Nottingham. And um, my wife at the time came with me to see it. I wanted to see if she liked it. And we both were blown away. And then that was that. Tell me a bit about that initial approach then. And like, <laughs> it was the days of MySpace. Yeah, it was MySpace days. So I guess it was the start of you know direct connections with artists. Um, I wrote to her. I think I bought yeah, I bought the CD at, from the merchandise thing. She had an EP, and I listened to that on the way back in the car, and then wrote to her on MySpace to see if I could buy some for the shop, which I was surprised by when she wrote back and said yes, absolutely, and. I don't know, we, we just kept buying them. We bought, we bought like a few boxes of them in the end and then she said we'd sold more than she'd sold on the whole tour from Derby. And I thought, well, if we can sell that many in Derby from people listening to it on a listening post, then surely we can sell more everywhere else. Um, and that was that. We started a label. And what did that look like then, that initial starting a label? And, and I'm, I've been doing music for a while, but I'm always kind of curious as to what labels actually do because because i think that that term covers a lot of different activities and a lot of different approaches so what does 
What does a reveal do? And has that changed over the years as, as things yeah, have moved on? Yeah, definitely changed over the years. I, I guess in those times, 2005, six, it was, well, we were running the store as well. So it was a kind of secondary business, but we set it up in conjunction with Pias, who asked, you know, we still work with now. Um, and they were like a leading independent distributor. So I had like, you know, people that knew what they were doing in terms of production and getting records to shops and things. But it was a steep learning curve, without a doubt, in terms of hiring publicity people and contracts and, yeah, timelines for things. And, yeah, I, I didn't know what I was doing at all, but Joan was very trusting. And I had the kind of like back-end knowledge, you know, from a retail side of things, mm -hmm. so I knew how it should be for the stores. Uh, but no doubt about it, yeah, I probably spent a lot of money I didn't need to spend um, then, but maybe that benefited the artists in, in the long run. And I guess you had this lovely thing where you grew together. So as you say, she was understanding, you were honest, obviously, about the situation that you were in. Yeah, but I mean, both Joan and Chris, I mean, Chris sort of immediately said, come up to Edinburgh and we'll have a chat. And we just went out for a meal and, you know, I kind of told him what I thought because at the time he wasn't a solo singer-songwriter and he told me what was possible and how long that would take. And, um, yeah, he was excited and he was just Joan and Chris both really trusting. And I think because of that initial trust, we, you know, stood us in good stead, you know, we've friends and we, you know, we know where we're at. Hmm. And so how has it developed then? What does Reveal look like now in terms of what it does for its artists? Because you've there's management for some of the artists, I believe. There's um, publishing, I think, too. So how do those different things work? And is it a different setup for each artist depending on what they yeah, need? Yeah, it's different. It's whatever they need. I mean, basically, we represent them all in business. Um, we do, you know, planning of tours and overseeing everything, being a second opinion being sort of an encouraging voice or um, it's collaborative, you know, when, it, when it's working at its best, it's collaborative and, you know, they have an idea. I, I probably get overexcited and then <laughs> we go from there. Um, we're a small company and it, we're personal and independent. And I guess we kind of look beyond streaming numbers and stats and things like that and focus mainly on, songs and the art and the you know director fan connections and things like that and it's 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 probably a bit of a cottage industry you know for those people but it's uh, it, it's whatever they need and we can do you know because i've had experience in promoting concerts and booking gigs and touring and merchandising and publishing and contracts you know all different aspects of the industry over the years i've got involved in so yeah, I guess now it stands to be in good stead for them on the management side. Mm. And how do you find people? Are you sort of actively looking or is it when you have those instances where you see someone and you're like, I need to work with you, you're great? Yeah, it's it's more often than not somebody sending me something and it's just blowing me away. And I just think, this person needs to be heard or, you know, and, or I, I, you know, I, I think I can help this person, you know, so I def I'm definitely not in the game of kind of, I'll make you a pop star, but I am mm. in 
more in the game of, you know, uh, if you want to be a long standing artist with playing consoles and things like that, then, you know, yes, I can do that. And that's really interesting because one of the, th- the things that we're doing this podcast and talking to a lot of independent creatives of all sort is this thing of we all know the pressures with, that, that technology brings and all the rest of it on music and other stuff. But it is possible, as you mentioned, to have that direct maker to fan relationship, which which wasn't possible in the traditional method. And yeah, people might have sold lots and lots of records, but they didn't know the name of the people who were buying those records everywhere and Building, as you've just mentioned, a long-term career that's there forever was was tricky, I guess. And and of course, the other thing with the traditional record label model was, yeah, you might get this fantastic advance that you could spend on guitars and cocaine or whatever it was, but actually, you were paying that back at some point, and people could shift a lot of vinyl. And there's a lot of sad stories of people not really seeing much for doing that. Whereas now, from my point of view, it's you can have quite a small reach, a small but dedicated fan base, and you can build a career from that in a way that maybe you couldn't in the past. Yeah, I guess that at the top end of what we do, you know, Joan, Lau, Eddie Reader, they've got a significant reach. Mm. Yeah, Chris as well. Um, but when you apply those personal direct-to-fan methods, it you know, it really works because, you know, you put something on sale and, you know, how many to press and, you know, ticket. Pe- people are just key. You know, they've come on this journey with us for like sort of 10, 15 years or whatever. Um, we've kept people on side since the very start. I think people want to champion, you know, great music that isn't, you know, isn't in the mainstream. And whenever those artists get public attention or whatever, you know, you see you see a big reaction from the hardcore following, and then hopefully we pick up a few more along the way as well. But I mean, it, it, everything starts with fantastic music, and you know that's it <laughs> there isn't there isn't any magic it's just it's just the magic is the music and you know if you have if you have that kind of like ruthless i'm going to leave that on the on the recording floor and not release it kind of attitude and only put out the best stuff that you stand by forever then yeah i think over time you build up this catalog of amazing albums and hopefully that's what we've done mm. but also i you know the artists that you mentioned must be in a position where they can put out what they want you know the, the traditional label method might be the sort of thing of that isn't what will sell that isn't what will have the mass appeal yeah we don't we just don't get into that at all it, it's like what do you you know what how do you want to express yourself how do you want that message to be put across to people and accepting that that if there are different levels of success you know success to me is literally someone loving it and I, you know it's cliche but it really is you know there are albums that i put out that I don't know, maybe they've only sold a few hundred copies or something, but there's some of my favourite records and I, I sort of think they that was justified. Mm. Yeah, and in the same way, sometimes you get lucky and something that's way better than you thought and that's great too. And it's not always the way that you expected it, I guess, is it? You know, Sometimes it might be not, although obviously you're liking everything that you put out, but it might be the ones that you thought were a bit more yeah. esoteric think, to do well. I think right at the start, I was keen to, established something so i probably made i probably made some mistakes in terms of putting out records i wasn't fully in love with by you know by some you know some that that's honest um and then very quickly that became my golden rule you know it's like 
something being eight out of ten is not good enough. It has to be like I have to absolutely love it, and the person has to absolutely stand by it. Mm. And you know, yeah. And time and time again, I guess we've had those conversations and then waited a bit longer and done something else, or you know, reduced it down to an EP or something. You know, it's that it's that kind of thing where. I think it's those artistic standards. And to be honest, I think all the people I work with have that anyway as a standard default. Mm. But they, from an artist's point of view, I think you need a certain freedom to be able to do that, don't you? Like, as you say, it sometimes takes time to achieve that. Oh, yeah. It's like, so I guess, like someone like The Little and Said is just, they've developed to a certain point before they've come to reveal. And then, while they've been at Reveal, they've—I you know, feel that they've like leapt forwards in terms of artistry, um, and I just think over time they'll make really important records, and you know, people perhaps haven't latched onto it just yet, but they'll look around and there'll be great records behind them. You know, that's it. That's it. People have this great back catalogue of stuff, don't they? Like you kind of particularly with the way the internet is, I feel like sometimes I'm putting a lot of content out and not hearing a lot back for it. But you think, well, it's A, if it's stuff that you stand by and it's good stuff, that's that's a success, as you mentioned, that's good. But then it's there forever. You know, this idea that you need to make an impact when you're 21 and be a pop star. I know people still do that, but it's a slightly different world to the world, as I've mentioned at the start, building a career where people come out to a room and see you 30, 40 years hence, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's, you know, are you chasing fame or are you, are you wanting to accept how many people actually, you know, love what you do? And it's, I think if you've got a, if you've got an audience, that's great. You know, there's so much music out there that sometimes you don't need a label. You know, sometimes you just, it, it, you're fine as you are, you know, direct to consumer and you're fine. But I think there's a point where you can't possibly be doing all the admin and all the planning and maybe you need a second opinion you know a filter or an editor or something to help you varying degrees with different parts of you know merchandising or when to put things out or how to put them out and I think I'm lucky in that respect in that I was a buyer for shops so I was always listening to music with a view to trying to find something between the cracks and mm. that's really what still trying to do you know find something that yeah I'm, I'm not i'm not trying to make people into pop stars and i'm not you know i'm not dealing in fame i'm dealing in great music and art and really that's sells itself really if you if you put it out there in the right way to people and i'd be interested to know how the the industry and in inverted commons the sort of in, yeah and the circuit that we're talking about has changed over the time that you've been with reveal was it 2005 that you started Reveal as a label around then? Yeah, 2005 as a label. Um, and then, yeah, and then through the next five years, I guess I, I, I started leaning more and more towards sort of folk and singer-songwriters and helped proper set up Navigator Records. And, you know, that was things like Bellowhead and John Bowden and stuff. Mm. Um yeah, so, and then during that time, did festival and concert booking as well, just so I could see the live side of it, so I could see that was really, that was where you were going to be selling records in the future. It's changed in terms of, it was press-driven at the start, 
It was mm. spend a lot of money on marketing in magazines and throw a lot of money at the radio. And, you know, it's occasionally you'd get a playlisted record and that would do really well. Um, and impact on everything else. It has changed as we've stayed connected with those fans from, say, 2006 and brought new ones on. Uh, you know, we've kind of got a direct engagement with the audience. And so for someone like Joan or Chris, while you still are finding new people, you're able to put out an album and... Um, tell them about new music. It could be tracks or an EP or anything, and it can pay for itself in a couple of days, you know, because you can write to them and tell them about it and then they'll order, you know, they, they trust that it's going to be good. Mm. And then does it become a bit of the game then for something like that? Is it having enough stuff that keeps that fan base happy? If they get, you know, they're going to, the thousand true fans thing, I guess, they're going to buy everything, but then it's a matter of making sure you can put out enough to do that. Yeah, but not going, not going to the well too often. If you know, you don't want to be going there with stuff that's not. You don't want to dilute the quality. Um, but I've always been a fan of like EPs and tracks that are not on albums and things, and encourage encourage people to do that. And so, yeah, that that's certainly been prevalent during lockdown. People have been doing little EPs and versions and acoustic things and just keeping the quality high but like no pressure on you know full albums mm. that, again that might be something that whether it continues in that vein when things are more back to normal or not because obviously for, for me anyway that a lot of the places where I sell physical copies of stuff is gigs and a, a great reason to keep making physical things is because people at gigs treat that like a bit of merchandise I think partly they know the music's available elsewhere but they like to have the physical thing um when there's no gigs <laughs> there's obviously it's a different world with that so i think a lot of people are now putting out single tracks um be interested to see if that develops or not but there's there's something about this circuit i think that makes the album still really valuable as you were mentioning before it's an it can be an artistic statement can't it about an artist perhaps more than a single track can and it'd be a shame not to have that i think yeah, I don't. I, to me, you know, you can't beat forty minutes of one journey. You know, it's like I just think it's fantastic. I can't see the album dying off as an art form. I think people always want to push themselves. You know, do extensive, wilder sort of music, and uh, you know, yeah, you can do that for you know for single tracks, but. I don't know, I'm quite into like concepts and finding out what the tracks are about and why and yeah. I mean we don't know what the future holds, but certainly I can't see it dying off. It's mm. like a hard back book, isn't it? It's like Yeah, they're still here despite everything else. Yeah, still here. They're still here and people still love them. I'm sorry to interrupt the conversation at this point, but I wondered if I could ask if you might possibly consider subscribing to the podcast, rating it and writing a review on your favourite podcast provider. Doing these wonderful things encourages the all-powerful algorithms to push the podcast to new people. It's also helpful when I'm talking to potential future guests, as it shows the people are listening. Thank you. Why do I always have to be the one who arranges? If I don't,
nothing gets done, nothing changes. You mentioned the, the whole thing about it at the start and the radio playlisting and that. Are those things as important in general for artists as they used to be? Or have those sort of gatekeepers become less important? Um, I think because there's so much music out there now, mm. having those little badges of approval from, say, I don't know, Mojo or The Guardian or Six Music, or, they can be really valuable. And certainly there's very little music television, so getting somebody on iPlayer or whatever for a live gig and it's streamable for a year, that can really benefit you. Um, it's just a different way. I mean, it's like, like I say, it's not the... If you're still aiming for, if you're aiming for the pop thing, then it is all out, spend a million pounds, do loads of radio, do loads of TV, um, online, Instagram, etc. Ads, but that model can't stack up for an independent artist at you know an art centre level. It, it just can't. So, yeah, I think we just try to take the existing fan base and then see who else might engage with it. You know, like which other artist fan base might appreciate you know so i don't know right at the start Jones Peace when we kind of targeted Anthony johnson fans and rufus wainwright fans and um, people that liked feist and martha wainwright and you know Jeremy mitchell all these sort of things that we thought well if we like this maybe they'll like this uh so we actively went and stood outside gigs and gave out samples and all that stuff and the equivalent now is to target the socials of those people and offer downloads and things you know it's there's just so much of it like that's the i think that's probably the, the biggest issue is you know getting someone to engage getting them to listen so if you've only got one chance of that the quality's got to be sky high mm. and i was struck by something you said earlier about the the fact that you have as much as you have fans of the label i guess sorry fans of the artists i guess you have fans or supporters of the label as well and is there some crossover then between the different artists even if they are quite different in the sound that they they have yeah absolutely i think we've been super lucky about having a kind of people that follow what's next on the label and you see the same names popping up buying different albums and someone might get in you know via Lau and then end up discovering Jones, Peace Woman already or the other way around. And it's, yeah, it's cross-pollination. It's brilliant. I love that. And I guess it's that thing of that I came across recently that sort of changed a lot of the way I think about things. It's a lot easier to serve the peop- the customers that you've already got than make new ones. Yeah, but you don't want to stand still and you don't want to kind of do the same thing over and over because it's like ever-decreasing circles if you do. So that's the challenge, really. I find that is how are we going to, you know, what are we going to do that's different? Everybody's doing something on a Friday. Shall we do it on a Tuesday? <laughs> it's just like, like little things. Shall we Shall we just drop the whole album overnight rather than doing lots of tracks? And yeah. then another artist, you might do lots of different tracks over six months and then it all comes together as an album. It's, I think when people have not got a fan base, lots of tracks is beneficial, you know, like over spread out over time because it's a real gradual brick by brick kind of building a fan base um don't really go for the whole spending tons of money on spotify pluggers and all that stuff it's you know yeah i've tried it and it's 
it is what it is. It's a bit of a scam to get loads of streams and, you know, it doesn't really do much. So, yeah, I just believe in the trying to target the personal, really, and how to make a connection with people directly. And, and accept that you can't, you know, you can't sell every record and you can't sell a record to every person. And sometimes you put out something that you love and no one gets. You know, it's like, it can be a bit disheartening, but, you, you know, it's... Maybe it's going to take a couple of years for people to catch up on that. And I found that time and again where people have bought something randomly from the shop online or from from another shop. And that started a whole journey of discovery through what we've been doing for the last 15 years. Mm. But then, you know, for me, how often has that happened in your own music anyway? Like I've done that. You, you happen across someone they're new to you and then there's this whole other stuff and as you say if you start then getting into the circuit and they played with so-and-so and they're in a band with so-and-so and it's or there's a label that has all this cool stuff going on you know all of my music was like that i was always discovering music from 20 30 40 years before i was born even <laughs> and it meant it was all still there so you could just dip in and take stuff out and see all these connections um i think that's a useful thing to remember for people who are putting things out it might not be might not be tomorrow, but that stuff is there forever to someone to to grab. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, as a as a kid, I would go and look in a record shop window in Nottingham and think, I wonder what the butthole surface sound like. You know, or <laughs> Ten Thousand Maniacs or whatever. And I'd sort of imagine Ten Thousand Maniacs must be a death metal band, and then you get it home, and it's like a kind of beautiful American folk record, and it leads you on to like listening to a whole other load of music you never would have done. Um, so yeah, I think it's <laughs> I think it's cool that way. You know, you can artists have got me into lots of different music that I've not been aware of, you know, from talking reference you know, going up through folk music really. I mean, got into folk music through through Chris. Mm. It it really was like, you know, I was into didn't really know a lot about it. Um I knew I liked some of it, but I, you know, it was a bit of a scary big world. Scary yeah, scary big world, and I, you know, I had definitely been listening to more kind of like independent music and electronica and American folk stuff, I guess. Um, so yeah, so that that was great discovering, say, Scottish folk music through talking to Chris and finding all these great people from the last thirty four years. And how important has the live aspect been? Because I would I would imagine that like if you've got an artist like that, you're booking gigs for. So, so I don't know if you book shows for Jane and stuff as well, but one of the the bigger headline acts, if you're then able to put another of your acts as a tour support or whatever, I guess that's been quite an important way to help them build a fan base. I guess I've done that. I did that at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And now, yeah, now now people, I guess, yeah, now, now say Joan's like established, it's almost like no support is better because people would want as much Joan as they Joan can get. Possible, yeah. So it's more about like finding the right, setting for her music if it's a solo show you know somewhere with a grand piano and seating and if it's a rock you know and then doing a rock club show with a live band that's really like killing it and there's 200 people you know so we did and we did the royal festival hall a couple of years ago and the next gig we did in a 200 capacity standing rock club because it was the opposite thing you know things don't always have to get bigger and bigger and bigger mm. you know sometimes it's good to kind of them for the vibe of doing them it really you know those gigs some of the best gigs i've been to have been tiny little you know 
hundred people gigs. Absolutely. And we could have more of that. <laughs> I guess going forward as well, we could have big rooms that can't be full, maybe. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's going to be an interesting dynamic. I'm not sure that that's going to work. I mean, I don't know, but I can't see how it's going to stack up for the venues and promoters. Financially, um, you mean? Yeah, and also just as I'm not sure the atmosphere is going to be right. You know, if you go into a thousand capacity concert hall and there's 200 people, going to be pretty lame isn't it? unless you can and well, i'm not sure how you would you know how you would make it great um it would just seem that they're on the wrong stage i think um yeah to me anyway i mean i've kind of like booked these shows or kind of been participating in planning tours and i've no idea if they're gonna happen it's like you know this i'm not sure how it can i mean i personally would not go to a gig right now i wouldn't want to go to close proximity standing show just uh, i think it's there's no vaccine it's not safe interesting it's like the holiday aspect isn't it like we haven't been on a flight i know some people have but it's like is it worth it you know you go somewhere you get stuck it's all that stuff not even being worried about getting sick it's all the kind of stuff around it just how much of a headache things are likely to be And, and so for gigs the circuit that i'm on people are starting to do stuff now which is really cool but there's this terrible, like, are people going to show up? Which is always the case anyway. But particularly given that a lot of the audience are people of a, a certain age, are people going to show up for concerts? So you're going to book a little run of shows and then the one in the middle is in a town that gets locked down. And, you know, how does that affect the rest, exactly, rest of what exactly. you do? And, and when you multiply that around, say, I don't know, going on a European tour, mm. if two countries lock down, you've, you know, it's catastrophic. You've, you're absolutely... You know, you've lost a pile of money and probably you've lost money across the whole tour and mm. no longer makes any sense. Um, and so much planning goes into it. So many people. I just, I don't know. I mean, it's it's like football. You know, I bought my season ticket, but I'm not sure if I'll be going. You know, it's kind of, I, I want to go, but. Yeah, and things just change so fast. That's it. It's hard to picture three weeks, let alone six months, I find. Yeah, it is hard to picture that. I, I, Quite hard. I sort of just go on my own gut instinct now because I'm not. I've got no faith that government is making decisions based on the health of the population. Really, I think it's based on finances. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's the mixed messaging. I've said this several times on, on these, but it's like for me the the hardest part in a way was that week where it's like the pubs are open, but don't go to them. So in terms of events, that was really tricky because it's like, well, should we be asking people to come out to shows or not then? And then as soon as it was everything's closed, you can't do anything. It was kind of an odd way, a bit of a relief, really, because it's like, well, we're not doing those shows, then fine. We know where we stand. And it feels like we're getting to the other side of that now. It's like, well, we could put shows on and ask people to come out, but but do we want to do that? You know, the usual thing for an artist, I'm sure it's the same for you, is the show must go on, even if it's snowing or you're sick or the there's a big football match on or whatever you just do it anyway but it's a slightly different scenario this time isn't it well yeah it's different in that you, I, I would feel responsible for the the spreading of you know perhaps killing some people because <laughs> yeah. it it's not worth it um, it's definitely frustrating not to be able to go to live music I've missed it so much but um I'm not sure that like online gigs really kind of could never really replace it, but 
yeah, I mean, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to being able to do it safely. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, you know, standing next to somebody else and engaging with them and people singing along and meeting them afterwards is such a big part of it at our level. Uh, you know, I don't really want to put a screen up and say, no, you can't have a photo and all that kind of stuff. It's yeah. like, it's not going to be the same. It's true. It's true. But you mentioned the whole Spotify thing then. I think it, it would be interesting to, to talk about that stuff. How do you approach it? Because you is it is it just a useful promotional thing that is what it is, or is it a disgusting thing that's killing independent music or, or something in the middle? Um, no, I don't think it's disgusting. I think it, in some ways, is the radio, you know, almost. Um Time and time again, I've been stood there and people have come to gigs because they've heard someone on Spotify. Interesting. Right. You know, I know that is a real thing. Um, I also know it does not pay and you cannot possibly base your career around streaming. It's just not happening. Um, So I don't think it's fair in terms of level of payout, but Napster wasn't fair and people downloading it you know i put out to survive by jonas policewoman and half the audience that bought the first album downloaded it for free off a russian website over one weekend so you know what's fair there <laughs> you know i was like we were getting nothing she was getting nothing it, you know, but we were still spending all the money um i don't know i use it i buy records i mean I, you know i use spotify i'm traveling around I'll use it. I'll use um, Bandcamp. You know, I'll try. I'll try and use Bandcamp where I can. I think that's the most moral of the streaming and download sites. But it's limited. You know, it's um, it's just a jigsaw of formats. It's it, there is it, there is no one thing. You know, it really isn't. You know, I just think CDs people think they're dead but they're not they're still out selling vinyl on most releases in the music that i put out um i will always buy vinyl where i can when i love something but i can't possibly buy 130 pound albums you know like but i can listen to 100 albums on spotify and then pick five that i want to buy things so I don't know. I just uh, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I, I can I can see what needs to exist. I can see why kids listen and consume music in the way they do. But it does seem there's a mass sort of like run towards subscription services. You know, mm. everything's free, sort of, and you're subscribed. And I'm not really into that. Um, I, I think there should be an, an equal exchange. I think you create something and you you sell it and someone gives you enough money that means you can go and create some more. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my opinion. No, it's, it's very valid. <laughs> because the, the reason I said is it disgusting is because I know there's a certain feeling amongst some creatives. We don't just talk about Spotify, it's all kinds of things. Of like, if we take our stuff away from them, they can't rip us off anymore which I can see the logic, but for me it's this thing of like I've had the similar situation or the opposite situation almost where I'm at a gig and someone's like, I don't have a CD player, but he's just stuff on Spotify. 
And then for me to be like, well, that's how you listen to your music. You can't listen to my music on there. You know what I mean? Like, and Bandcamp is wonderful, but it it's a certain type of music fan that engages with Bandcamp, I think, and you could try and convert people to it. Basically, just to have your music not available on the, the thing that most people use seems kind of counterintuitive. But then I guess there's an argument for being for being exclusive. I don't know. But certainly the 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 way it pays isn't right. And the most irritating thing about it is that somebody makes money and it's not the it's not the independent creative and with the subscription model as I understand it, most of your nine quid or whatever it is doesn't go to the people that you listen to necessarily, and that seems pretty frustrating. Already. Or any of it. Or any of it. Yeah. And, and that, I don't know. I mean, all I would say is you've got to let people choose. It's give them the free choice. And if you give them the information, and the more we give them the information about the crap returns for artists on Spotify, if they then choose to carry on that way and not give you, say, five quid on Bandcamp, then that's their moral choice. But I feel like put the music out on all the formats people want to engage with it and let them make their choice. Yeah, hopefully enough people will engage directly and give you enough money to carry on. I mean, it's certainly hard, and it's much harder than it used to be. But it used to be easier to get things on the radio, and if you got on the radio, it had a greater impact. And now you get a track on the radio and there's almost no impact. So, you know, being in a playlist, um, getting a sync on a film, Someone like Richard Birkin, who I work with, there isn't really a live audience, but, you know, there's millions of streams from having stuff on soundtracks and mm. he gets other work, you know, goes to Abbey Road and writes sort of modern classical pieces for film and TV because of that. And so it's, I can't really say Spotify's the evil, the evil thing when, you know, that's, the sole kind of driver of his uh, audience. I think that's it, isn't it? There's so many different ways of doing it. As you mentioned, there's a lot of music, but there are so many different ways of doing it now. Um, it's kind of interesting. In, on balance then, would you say that it's a good time to be an independent creative and an independent record label or or not? I think if you're trying to do it to get, you know, to get rich, you, you're pretty mad. But um, if you're doing it, just to be involved in music like I am, you know, I've just stayed involved in music since leaving school. Um, I can't imagine not doing anything else. Then as long as I've got enough, I'm all right. You know, I don't, I don't need everything. I don't need to sell every record. I just need enough. Um, it is without doubt far more challenging than it used to be. Um, but it's also far more rewarding because you're seeing immediately the reaction of people mm. when you put something good out. And yeah, it's, that feels good, spreading some goodness. What are the things that make it more challenging then? I guess we've, we've highlighted some of them, but just that there's so much stuff. Well, I, I think there's still a kind of fight between how much you spend on press and publicity versus what comes in and how it comes in. Mm. And you want to feel that you've done enough for somebody. You know, you don't want to feel that you've all you've done is service these people that already know about them. You know, so you've 
certainly me i mean i i want i want to try and get every new possible person into the music whether you know whether they're in sort of brazil or france or wherever they are you know um so yeah i will try things from time to time to try and engage with people in different countries on behalf of other people to develop audiences but that can be you know sometimes a loss leading thing and how about the actual sort of cost of recording and and duplicating stuff is that something that the reveal has a a part in or do artists tend to look after that themselves uh both really it depends on the terms of what we're doing if i guess if we own the recordings then we would pay for the master mm. if we license the recordings they would be delivered to us um some of the people i work with are fortunate enough to be able to go to their fan bases and say we are making this thing you can help out in this way and they do and that covers the you know the studios and the artwork and things like that and it, or enables them to do it at a much higher level you know you use a better facility or, oh, okay you know so yeah I, I guess we hopefully we've got really high standards in artwork and recording um, but then again that said sometimes great things are just recorded on a phone and we get them mastered you know it's like i think boo hewding did a record for pete milson and it was it was the record was the recordings he made on his phone and they just got it mastered right. somewhere was, you know which was great um so yeah i don't know it's uh there's no one way that works entirely and there's some element I I sort of get the sense of of kind of an in-houseness because I was like obviously Dan Whitehouse who I know a little bit I was looking at the credits from his most recent album and stuff was produced by Boo I think or people from somebody else's band did I say that you played on it as well? No, I don't play music, but I did produce one of the that was yeah as a production. Luckily, yeah, he he let me produce the first part of that, the Dreamland. Um, with John from the Little Unsaid, and yeah, Dan was like super kind of open to other people's ideas, and he just kind of like went with it. And then we sort of edited it down to what got released. But that record was like two two different things. Um, the second disc was just voice and guitar recorded with John Kelly, who's done like Kate Bush and Prefab Sprout and really cool stuff. Great mic uh, in London really quickly, but really, you know, honestly. And I think that came across. And then the first disc was more layered and experimental. And that's the one that I produced. Cool. And come back to what we mentioned at the start, this thing of people having the space to do those experimental things is really interesting. Um, giving people the freedom to do that stuff it's you know I don't think there's that many obviously people can make stuff for themselves they can do what they want but in terms of having the support of a, a label or whatever I don't know how I don't know I don't know how common it is that people are completely allowed to just express their own creative muse in that way I mean you, <laughs> I don't really feel that you can control someone's creative muse I think it's like Joan or Lau, I mean, Christ, they're just like forever collaborating with people and it just becomes more interesting because of it, I think. 
Um, and then it influences the thing that they do next because, you know, I don't know, if Joan goes and plays with Tony Allen or whatever, it's a whole different rhythmic thing. And then the next session she might do might be influenced by that in a different way. Um, I think you're just forever learning from collaboration and that's that's true for me too. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tom, for taking the time to chat. That's been really interesting. If My people pleasure. want to see the latest stuff that's coming up with Reveal, what's the best way to engage with you? Um, well, they can go to revealrecords.co.uk and see what's out. And if they want to speak to me directly, they can do so on Twitter, which is Tom Rose Music. And the tours that you'd mentioned or the gigs that you mentioned, which are, are hopefully happening, who, <laughs> who have we got coming up for early 2021? Okay, so hopefully, uh, Chris Driever will be touring in March. Lau will be playing in May and June. Jonas Policewoman will be on tour through the summer. Eddie Reader will be doing a huge tour through the summer. Little said, um, Yeah, pretty much everybody should be back on the road. Hopefully. Fantastic. Well, here's, here's hoping. And, you know, we will, as a community of of musicians and fans and everyone else who supports it we will make things work it's what we do in it we shoestring and we make stuff happen yeah keep doing it all right thanks robert cheers tom thanks so much take care bye thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed that join us next time on the robert lane creative careers podcast until then please subscribe rate and review and have a look at robertlanemusic.co.uk to see the other projects i'm working thank you goodbye